listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Again, I'm Tom Hammond, your uh, host and co-founder of UserWise. Um, today, I am really excited to uh, have Francesco, Francesco Fontana on. Um, apparently, I can't speak anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you're, you're in Helsinki now, right? Yeah, I am. It's, uh, it's cloudy and uh, the winter is coming. Yeah, working so. at, at Savage Games, which I think everyone in the, in the industry is, you know, actively watching and excited to see what kind of shooter you guys uh, come up and put together. But, uh, you know, before we uh, delve into things today, I know, you know, we wanted to spend some time talking about testing retention, which as we are on the Mastering Retention podcast, gets me super excited. Um, you know, I always like to ask, you know, what's your story? Like, how did you end up in games and how did you end up, you know, where you are today? Well, like, uh, so um, <laughs> this goes way back. Uh, I think the last years of my high school have been like the most uh, um, interesting for like knowing what I wanted to do next. I always wanted to be a doctor, like uh, in medicine. <laughs> and Dude, me I too, and I, me too. And then here I am. But then the thing is that like, I thought that was a great option. I, I loved uh, the problems of like uh, problem solving in medicine. And, uh, but then I, I realized that I wanted to do that only because it seemed a valuable and safe career. Then thanks to my, my older brother, that showed me showed me that uh, also career in games was possible, and since he knew my passion, uh, I I decided to shift my focus. So I started design uh, right after high school, and I started working in games right away. Really, like the first year, uh, I collaborated with a indie studio called We Are Muesli. They are still active and, and uh, expanding, and they are doing mainly narrative games, escape rooms, all kinds of cool stuff. Really, like, uh, really nice stuff. I, I really miss working with them. And, um, and in the meantime, I became also a journalist in the video game, like video game journalist. So I could, I could talk to all the developers and getting my foot in the, in the door for all kinds of uh, stuff. And after my studies, I started working at Wargaming Helsinki for about a year. Then the studio closed and I went to Rovio, um, where I continued. I worked on uh, Phoenix Rangers, which was a soft launch game, a puzzle RPG. And then I led a prototype team for some time before joining Savage, where I am senior game designer. Uh, mainly working with uh, metagame systems, economies, and um, everything I can do to help, really. It's a startup. <laughs> so, you know, you guys are obviously working on a new game. Um, I'm going to ask you some game economy questions because I, I love game economy design. Um, you know, for someone that maybe doesn't have as much experience kind of designing those economies, you know, thinking about a new game, like, how should I be like thinking or planning about, you know, the game's economy when it's maybe going through rapid prototype changes and things like that? You know, how does the economy fit into that, you know, phase of game creation? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. It's one I had to face very recently as well, since um, um, I've never been part before uh, before this time uh, of, a, of a big team that was starting like uh, a new game. So I had to do my usual job, but from the very, very beginning, rather than getting onboarded on something that was already done. So I could build all the foundations and, uh, and that's definitely one of the main problems that I faced. And my answer to that is that you should make the game playable always at all stages, even accommodating the, the needs. For example, if there's only one level where you shoot three guys, that, that those, those three guys need to like feel good uh to, to, to kill and uh, so the time to kill needs to be something and uh the weapon needs to do some sort of damage but don't stress too much about it because everybody knows that the game is not balanced completely and the bigger plan is what you need to work on in parallel behind the scenes so for example as we were testing a level at savage i was okay building some sort of draft game balancing. And then in the meantime, preparing tools and simulation tools to allow for uh, uh, simulating a thousand uh, playthroughs of, of that level. 
to see where the, the player might have died, what was the chance, and uh, what I could do about it. But really, in uh, in a Friday's playtest, you don't really see that small chance, or uh, or you don't need that level granularity to make the level playable. So my so to sum it up is just try to focus on what works uh, right now, even though it's not perfect and make the game playable because that enables everybody to work on it. And then in the meantime, do your mastermind plan behind the scenes. I like that a lot. Yeah, I've heard um, always play the build, you know, especially when you're designing economies, because even though you've planned it out that getting that, you know, finding that one diamond is going to be perfect or something, you actually play the build and it's just like completely underwhelming. And you're like, oh, I got to go back to the drawing board on <laughs> yeah. when I'm actually yeah, giving it's, players. And it's fairly easy to to just make something that works for a prototype because you don't have weeks or days <laughs> or, or months of play. You just have like 30 minutes. So you can you can balance an economy for 30 minutes, <laughs> even though it's not gonna it's not gonna stay like fresh or who cares? It's 30 minutes. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Well, you know, thinking uh, again a little bit more on like this uh, early stage prototype, like I've been working with a lot of uh, game companies later that are um, e- either in soft launch or just about to soft launch. And, um, you know, really the, the purpose of a soft launch is to as quickly as possible figure out like, is this something that, you know, players are going to enjoy and I can get that CAC below my LTV so that I can actually scale this thing up and, you know, drive it home. Um, before I spend, you know, a ton of time, you know, integrating my live ops tools and all those other pieces to be get ready for a global launch, I want to very quickly figure out, you know, like, do I have the retention to be able to support this player base? Like, is it going to be fun? Um, so, you know, th- this kind of idea of retention testing or retention optimization comes in. Um, so, you know, when I say that, like, what does that actually mean to you? Well, I think like that's kind of the one million dollar question in a way, uh, like how, how to how to approach that problem. But I think like the, the, the simpler the game, the easier you can test your, uh, sorry, the earlier you can test your attention. And the more complex it is, the later. And it doesn't mean that if you get bad retention numbers after your uh, earlier testing, doesn't mean that the game is uh, it's not working. It just means maybe that it's not complete. So understanding when the game has enough systems or enough content or enough gameplay elements to to be tested is probably the ultimate question. Like when, and that is really complex uh, when when you are in a pipeline with like a, in a huge company with twenty prototypes in the in the <laughs> next to you ready to 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 make it, and it's really hard to to present and explain also to like people who need to make the call. And it's much easier to identify in a smaller company because the loop are much um, smaller. But anyway, like for example, if you need to test a hyper-casual game, the retention of a hyper-casual game, you can do it after a week or after a month of development, like depending on your hyper-casual, because it's really like you press the button, the character jumps, there's not much to it. There are some very light systems, ads coming in, but the retention really like, it's probably reliable after a few, few uh, like after a short development time. But if you need to spend, uh, to sorry, to test a 4X game or a looter shooter or an RPG, like imagine testing uh, the retention of Pokemon Go when there's no way to catch Pokemon. There's just ways to, I don't know. Or maybe there's a way to catch Pokemon, but there are 10 Pokemon. Or, uh, or there's nothing you can do with the Pokemon after you caught them. Like it's, it's much harder, right? So you need to test it uh, further down the line, but you can still do earlier testing to understand if the, the, the small mechanics that you put in are working. And then when the time comes to look at the numbers, then they are at least reliable. You can look at the numbers beforehand, of course, but with a grain of salt, maybe. Is there a good system in place? So I'm, I'm thinking of a, a studio that I've been you know, working with for a little while. Um, they, they have a game. It's... I don't know, maybe like halfway done, but, you know, following good protocol, they soft launched it. Um, and they're seeing maybe like 30% day one retention. Um, top games that are, you know, kind of similar are probably closer to like 50 to 60% done. Um, they're, you know, definitely far from where they need to be, but they have this huge like feature roadmap. Um, but they also only have so much timeline f- from a funding perspective. Um, yeah. you know, are, is there any tips that you have to say like, okay, 
how much time should I invest in this? Because it's very possible that I build out all those features over the next six months and nothing changes. Um, and there, you know, still, and now I've squandered that time that I could have been, you know, building another game that gives me a better, you know, shot on the goal. Yeah. Well, of course, like you can, uh, you can start testing things as soon as possible. And, uh, there's no really downside in that aside from using resources in terms of time of the people that work with you, uh, and the cost of doing that. Um, but like you can, you can give, like you can start fixing problems that are uh, related to your retention as early as possible, but you need to understand whether those problems come from a lack of features or systems and, uh, or from, uh, from the fact that the feature is not working or balanced. So to come to your question, then how do you prioritize? Then like, in, I think you, you have different approaches. You can try to chase the what's standard but usually like that's not very efficient for a small company, but it's very efficient for uh, like a colossal 300 people company because they can just pump all the features right in as soon as possible and then fixing problems with them. Or um, so you can, um, so as I said, you can, you can either uh, slam all the features in as soon as possible and see what happens or try to understand what feature has the most impact. And in my experience, uh, like especially at Rovio, I noticed something that was a bit unusual. Uh, to, to at least what I thought at the time, that we, we added a few features that were supposed to improve um, day seven retention, which was mm-hmm. what we wanted to improve because we, we reached more or less the target for day one. But yep. what happened is that the day one and day two improved instead. So what happened there? And uh, the um, kind of the... <laughs> Um, how do you say it? like the, the result of that the train of thought was basically that players would see that there's more to the game so they're like pulled towards day, day three, day four, day seven even though they're not really using or engaging that to, with that feature um, yeah. until that day but they're still pulled mm-hmm. and I think that's what happened uh, in that specific case with the um, yeah with, the, with Phoenix Rangers do you think there's ever a case to use like user research, you know, within this realm, like, you know, in-game surveys during a soft launch or something like that? To, oh, yeah, of course. How would you go about doing that? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a big topic, but, uh, but definitely you should, you should do user research as soon as, as possible, even before having a, a game idea <laughs> to understand, <laughs> really to understand everything about, okay, well, maybe that's a bit too early, but once you have a rough idea, <laughs> you should understand your audience as, yep. as soon as possible. And uh, for user research, you can do a lot of guessing and then having a clear hypothesis that you can test. So if you don't have the clear hypothesis because you don't have a clear idea of what you're going to do, then you're never going to get like reliable results. Um, there are a few ways that you can do it. Like I would, I would rely on a huge set of analytics to improve uh, any, anything really, like uh, for mm-hmm. any test, because the more, the more analytic data you have, the more you can, you, the, more, the more stuff you can um, deduce. But qualitative tests, come really in handy to give you the first insights. But then I think you always need to confirm them with quantitative analytics. data. Yeah. And that's often analytics, but it could be also a survey for a thousand people, as long as it's not a survey for 10 people, because that's qualitative and not really quantitative. So I don't know, you could do a focus group or uh, some, um, some playtest cloud testing where you see the players playing and ask questions to them. And then it gives you a hunch what could be the problem and then you open your huge data set of uh, 100 million queries and you see that oh there is a correlation and then maybe you can do something about it but asking the right question is usually like the bigger bigger part of the problem as a game designer are are you able to like write and do sql queries i know a lot of pms are you know fluent in sql and it's kind of their go-to or do you think game designers should also flow into that box or do you you know typically rely on more on like the bi folks well as as any as any technical skill is useful to have at least to the extent that allows you to talk with the people that know really what they're doing so like i am able to prototype my own games to a certain extent or for example the simulator uh, that i was mentioning earlier like 
I, I coded with the help of the lead programmer. So it's, it's always useful to have technical skills. I thought, I, I wouldn't say it's required, but it's definitely preferable. For example, like in Rovio at some point, I was uh, on the verge of saying, okay, please tell, uh, like teach me how to do this so I can, I can stop bothering you. That's also <laughs> valuable. <laughs> and uh, our BI engineer was amazing. Uh, and I had a great time. And uh, I think what, what's really valuable in the collaboration rather than writing the query is the knowledge of statistics and understanding when, uh, which tool to use, like whether a t-test or uh, other fancy statistical tools to understand whether something is reliable or not. What's, uh, for example, how many players do you need to make this particular test uh, reliable enough? 10, 100. Like if, uh, for example, if the button presses, probably you need a way smaller pool than if the shooting uh, is bugged or not. Yeah. You know, so that, that the collaboration is always useful, especially when, when it gets into the most complex stuff. But I, I'd say like, if you're a game designer and you work a lot with live operation, then you probably should, should learn it at some point. And I'll, I'll definitely do it <laughs> as well. Do you have a, a favorite analytics tool? I know a lot of like Xrovio, Xplaytica, Studio seem, seem to be amplitude all, all across the board from what I've seen, but uh, curious if you have a favorite Looker, Tableau, there's lots of them out there. Well, uh, the one that we were using in Rovio, and it's a, it's a custom one that's made in-house, it was really amazing, I think, especially in the potential that had in uh, comparing data uh, and everything was very really clean and pretty dashboards and you could really easily add dashboards to it. So, well, I don't think I can go too much into the details of that, but I was, uh, I was really, I was really happy with that. And I deeply miss it. Well, not yet because we're not live, but I will deeply miss it. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Cool. Um, thinking a little bit about, um, I guess, shooter creation now. Um, so I'm, you know, really fascinated. Like, what's it like going from, you know, like Phoenix Rangers was kind of this puzzle type game to a shooter a game. Um, yeah, you know, like, did you learn anything in the puzzle genre that is really translated well to shooters or, or vice versa? I'm not sure if about the genre itself, but I think the concepts of uh, economy design for both are, are pretty applicable, like um, they can they can be translated easily. Um, for example, like Phoenix Rangers was a turn-based uh, game, right? So what happens when you need to balance real time? My take is that the only thing that changes really is that instead of having one turn, you have fractions of seconds or one second. And then you measure the balance second to second. In fact, the term BPS is probably not new to you, damage per second. And, and that's how you go about it. You just fragment it as much, like as small as possible, and then you take it from there. So for example, to balance the, a weapon against an enemy, really it's the time to kill. So how many seconds to kill this guy? And then you can calculate mathematically what's the damage per second with the reload speed and um, the fire rate and the damage of the single bullet. And it gets more granular and granular, but really, it doesn't make that much difference from you press a button, you deal some damage. It's just more complicated, but the concept is really translatable. And uh, the game economy is really the same because the matter game could be, could be like a bunch of system interacting with each other. You get some currency, you sink it somewhere else. And it doesn't matter if it's about building a, a base or mm. if it's about modding your weapon, the math is really the same. So as a designer, you're probably flexible enough to apply the concepts to both worlds. There is a lot of learning and uh, that needs to be done uh, to, to, to handle this complexity or to, to consider it completely. For example, DPS, uh, if you're talking about a weapon, is only, uh, it's not exactly representative of the damage per second you do on a longer amount of time because you need to factor in the fact that at some point your, your guy is going to reload the weapon. So effective uh, DPS also uh, factors in the reload of the weapon and same for the enemies. So I think the learning curve is in finding or catching these differences rather than uh, finding new concepts per se. Mm. When you're you know, thinking about that economy design, um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about back when I had uh, Ethan Levy on the podcast and, and he was telling me a little bit about uh, when he was designing legendary Game of Heroes for Network. Um, and, and he was kind of uh, lamenting on the fact that, you know, they didn't really take the right amount of time and he just wished they would have spent, you know, an extra day or two thinking about the game economy, not just like three years out, but five or 10 years out because they had these elder players that stuck around for three years and they'd basically like maxed out everything. They'd gone through all the meta economy designs and things like that. And, you know, he was going, you know, if we just started on day one and we'd planned to have these additional systems kind of kick in three years or five years or or whatever. And, um, and then it just adds so much additional lifespan, you know, when is it appropriate to spend time thinking and planning that far out and what those systems might be or, you know, what they might look like versus, you know, I, I look at like Hungry Shark World. Um, you know, they ran into some game economy issues where then they just released like a new game mode that kind of reinvented the economy. World of Warcraft kind of does this with every one of their expansions, right? They just kind of like reset the stuff that matters and it gives them a chance to kind of, you know, completely break the old economy, which we don't care about anymore because everyone's, you know, moved on to this next area. Um, You know, is there a right approach from a, you know, long run free to play perspective? Well, I think like in the case of World of Warcraft, like my, my intuition is that, that encourage that is done also to push the players to the to the end game as far as soon as possible so that they can play the latest coolest content in fact the curves from classic to retail are completely different <laughs> like the speed to get to level 16 retail is absurd compared to classic yeah. um but uh but yeah i think that's the reason why uh they want you to play the all the latest only because there's so much but regarding like uh easier examples i think you can you don't have necessarily to plan it out as long as you try to create isolated uh, economies. So there are two ways of, of using resources, or well, more or less at least. You can use a resource that is used in many places, or you can create a, a resource that's used only in one place. If you do that, then you can add as many parallel um, as many parallel systems as you want because they don't interact with each other yeah. because you use you use gold only to buy food and you use blue gold only to buy water and there's if, as long as there's no transition between these currencies then these systems are isolated and in this way it becomes modular and you can pop pieces in pop pieces out and uh, you can keep adding 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 and and that's one way of doing it without planning uh, extensively the problem arises if you use your currencies in many places because for example if you played five years then you have a like way different income of that <laughs> currency that uh, and a way different uh you can hoard the currency or uh, the currency gets inflated and you have all these kind of problems so my take is that one should probably build systems in a way that they are fairly isolated so that at the moment you want to create an expansion, that, that expansion becomes relevant only for players that are at that point. And then all the previous resources are used or either are not used anymore or they're not relevant. But for a new player, the, the new player doesn't see the later game resources. They just see the early game resources. So it's fine. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's... Uh, I think so. Is there... Is there a good, so like, you know, using those kind of one-off currencies for certain things, I can see the value in doing that, but I could also, from a maintenance standpoint or keeping track of all the things that are going on in the game, if you keep adding all these different currencies and, and things, you know, does that add a lot of complexity and maintenance and, you know, two years in after you keep adding all these things, you know, do you need to recycle some of them? Is there like a reasonable amount that like, we should keep this many in the game at once. Um, you know, I think about like Magic the Gathering. I think one of the big revelations they had was let's cycle sets and retire them from, you know, over time. So that there's only like four active sets at any given moment. Um, 
one, because it encourages people to buy the, the new stuff and it, but it also allows us to change the meta and whatnot. And then we don't have to worry about balancing and all this stuff against all these old things that, you know, might still be floating around. Does that kind of make sense. Yeah, it does. Like uh, keeping the meta fresh is always like, uh, that's a, that's a very different thing because the, in, in, for example, in Magic, the, the cards you get your first day of Magic are still somewhat relevant the last day of Magic. It's not, it's not like they are less relevant, but the currency or the weapon you got in your first day as a shooter player <laughs> is probably completely useless on your 30, 30 days uh, day of, of, uh, of play. So as long as the currency naturally or the, the, the content really naturally flows out or becomes irrelevant and relevant, at different points of the player journey, I think you're you're really fine. But also, if you think about how events are often handled, so the, there's the event currency that is valid for that event, and then it's retired and can gets translated into something else, either some other parallel points that you can use for, to, to do something else, or you can um, translate it into something else. Really, but the point is that you can you can put it and retire it uh, for a, for a weekend. And uh, since it's an isolated system, you can do that. Uh, of course, you shouldn't. You should have. I'm not saying you should have an inventory of 50, uh, 50 <laughs> uh, uh, currencies, but rather, let's say you decided three is a good amount for the player to juggle. Make them relevant and irrelevant at different levels throughout you know, the player journey. I like that. So let's talk a little bit about um, live ops and currencies and and whatnot um do you have any you know tips and tricks or uh experience where you know hey we made this live ops event and in that event we created i don't know experience coins or, or something like that um and you know they're only going to be relevant for the duration of that you know event um how would you go about making them meaningful so that players actually want to you know, accumulate those experience coins. Also, there is definitely a trend of getting this, the, the live ops events um, as soon as possible in the player journey. So I think there was a tendency some years ago of saying, okay, the events are only for the end game. But I, I believe that now, as, as soon as you're ready to play, you can participate in events at your own level and... Uh, kind of the, the event is fragmented in a way that you can compete or or participate in it at any at any point. For example, in, in, the, in the case of puzzle RPGs, uh, in Phoenix Rangers, there was like the, the, the equivalent of the Titan for, uh, for uh, Empires and Puzzles. So a monster that the guild had to fight and it was for a limited time, that's an event. So in that, in that event, uh, low-level players and high-level players could participate no matter which point of the journey they were at. They were contributing in different ways and there were prizes for different kinds of uh, tiers. Of course, the lower-level prizes, um, we, we can do it so that we could do it so that they were getting resources more useful for that level of play. So, oh, I didn't get the first prize with all the coolest stuff. I still got useful stuff for my level of play. And then the top... Uh, top dog with uh, awesome monsters, they could get the first prize, which was relevant for the point of the progression they were at. So again, I think it's a, I, the underlying topic here is understanding exactly which point of the player journey your player is. Mm -hmm. And then anything can be relevant for them if you design the game in a way that's like, uh, like let's say, uh, proper. Because yeah. yo, you, you need this currency, here's an event where you can get it, you can participate in it. You don't need uh, to be level 5 million. You just go in and get the stuff you need. And that's really, you create the need for, for that. And then it doesn't matter if it's from a live ops event or, uh, or the, your, your standard progression. But maybe like one, one thing we could, we could briefly touch upon is how do you create that need? And I think it's super interesting to uh, kind of understand that you need to design a, a balanced uh, progression. By, by balanced, I mean that sinks and faucets are more or less on the same level. So you get mm -hmm. as much as you can spend. However, if you manually or by some mathematical tool of your choice offset that, 
at different points of the player journey, then you're effectively either giving more that they can spend or less that they can spend. So they're starved or overwhelmed. And if you keep this imbalance uh, in, uh, like in control, it creates really interesting points where at some point, oh, I need, oh, I thought I had all the food in the world, but now I need it. Let me grind these levels so that I can compensate. And uh, I think that's one way of creating the need for your currency, aside from the aesthetics of having the coolest gun or the coolest uh, new skin or uh, gear, which is really powerful as well. Yeah. Both, they, should, they should go hand in hand, most, most likely. I like that a lot. Um, I just started playing uh, Diablo 2 Resurrected with some of my buddies and I uh, nice. I grinded a little, uh, I think it was like Nightmare Countess for a little while and I had all these tower runes and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm loaded up. And then, you know, some of my friends came in I was like giving out tower runes and I go to like make a weapon and I'm like, I'm out of tower runes already. And, you know, I had this like plentiful and, and now I've got to go back and, and grind some more Countess or whatnot. So um, yeah, it, it's a fun time. Um Looping back real quick to that, you know, event design, um, I, I've seen games do two different things. So, you know, I think one of the hardest challenges that I see with running a live game is you always have these different cohorts of players at different stages in the game, right? You have your elder players that are at the far end of the content, right? And you always have new players coming in. And then you got all the other groups in between. Um, you know, if I want to create an event, do you think it is better for me to try to design the overall event to kind of accommodate all those different groups of players? So, you know, I, I designed the top reward to be for those elder players. They'll probably be able to get it. And then I, you know, run the numbers and say, okay, well, for the new players, they'll probably be able to get yay far into the event. So I'll put some something nice there for them to get, even though they, you know, don't get to the high or, I see others that are like, okay, I'm going to create a completely segmented event. So my new players are going to get, you know, this version of the event that is win 10 big jackpots and you get, you know, a million coins overall against slot game here. But for my elder players, it's going to be like win a thousand big jackpots. And if you do that, you're going to get like 2 billion coins for like the top reward or something like that. And so it's like a very different challenge but different reward levels scaled more appropriately to like where those players are. Like, is there a good way to go about doing that? Or does it highly depend on, you know, the, the players and how much they're maybe talking to each other because, you know, would they get upset if they see that they have a different version of that event or whatnot, if that makes sense. I mean, if there are different levels of the progression, I think it's going to be all right. But the, I think the, to answer your question is like, we need to understand what kind of audience we're talking about because several audience, like different audiences perceive uh, competition in very different ways. Uh, and that's the, really the first step. For example, an audience might really badly react to seeing that they are number 5 million in a leaderboard. Like really, like that could be disheartening. Really yeah. <laughs> And another, they they could say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend my life and money on this game to be the top, and maybe that's encouraging to them. So understanding the audience is really the first step for that and everything really, any any game development topic. Um, but after that, after you understood the audience and the kind of competition they like, if you're still in doubt, then I believe that giving the fairest chance to win or the, like the most celebration, because the, the chance to win is the same, but the celebration of being first, um, like the wor- the best of the worst, <laughs> rather than being okay among the very top ladder, it's, yeah. it's still, uh, it's probably better. If you think about how the, the Hearthstone ladder works, mm-hmm. it's it's really that they, they subdivide legend players and not legend players. And uh and that's just a way to make you feel like you're not just one in a million, <laughs> unless unless you are, and then you become a legend player. But let's let's like, that's uh, one in uh, what is it ten thousand player? I don't know something like that. Yeah, um, I I feel like I posted about this at some point. I can't remember exactly which game. It might have been like Coin Master, but like you get in and they like introduce you to like the the wall after you've been grinding for a while, and then you're you know number 100 out of like 100 million or something and you're just like well that's disheartening i'm not yeah. not gonna chase after that anymore um 
versus, you know, if they grouped you into, you know, the, the bronze league or something like that. And now hmm. I'm number, you know, 40 out of, you know, Oh, well, I don't have that much further to go until I'm actually number one of this group. Yeah. I think that's always more effective because it, it, it makes your, your progress more noticeable. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the, the tower of want principle? The tower of? The tower of want? I'm not sure. Okay. So again, this is Ethan, Ethan Levy. Um, but uh, Joachim Akron actually had him on to talk about it on the Elite Game Developers podcast again too. Uh, but he gave a GDC talk, which is um, definitely something I would recommend everyone to do. Um, and the, the general idea with the tower of want is to... Um, really get to the baseline of like, why are players um, doing something? Um, why do they want to progress? Why do they want to do this level? Um, let me see if I can explain it a little bit better. Um, so it's basically to help game designers to kind of create these long-term goals because like with a free-to-play game, like ideally I want players to be playing, you know, 10 years from now. Um, and so you, you kind of break down, like if I did the tower of want for, let's say school, like, why do I want to do well in school or why do I want to study uh, so I can do well in school? Why do you want to do well in school uh, so that I can get into a good college? Why do you want to get into a good college so I can get a good job? Why do you, so I can get a house, so I can get a family. So, so you know, you, you end up outlining these like long-term goals of like, what is this person actually trying to do? And you can do that same thing, um, within, you know, your game development. So you have these like series of short and long-term goals that are kind of like escalating on each other. Um, but as you were kind of outlining the concept of like tiers versus like the overall leaderboard with everyone on there, um, it just reminded me a lot of the tower of one. So I'd be yeah. curious if you've ever used a similar framework. I'm not sure if I used it as such, but I definitely like uh, the understanding player motivation is one of the key things to start designing your game. And that can go from uh, understanding what they're, what they're after, like in terms of like what, what does a shooter player or an RPG shooter player that, that likes fantasy, what, what do they want first, for example, or what does a World of Warcraft player want in the in the very beginning of their their Warcraft career, they want to adventure. They want a cape. I want personally a cape in every single fantasy <laughs> game I am into. I just want a cape, and then I'm good. But anyway, like we use player traits uh, now, twelve traits. Sorry, um, yep. at Savage, and uh, it's been super useful and it informs us on the on uh, like, well, it informs and checks. Uh, whether we are doing a, a good job on a daily basis. Like we often go, go back and see, okay, the research says this, so it's probable that this mechanic really appeals to them or they would like to crack the system instead of being tutorialized. Um, and understanding play motivation is, is super, super mm -hmm. key to, to do that. And I think you should always design the, the smallest goal possible as well as shining a big light at intermediate goals and the long-term goal so that you create a natural ladder of uh, things to do. Hmm. But it could be even as small as kill the enemy in front of you and then you get a celebration and you kill multiple enemies and you get your, your weapon levels up. Then your weapon levels up and you can put more, you can, you can it, it does more damage or you can put more mods on it. And then you want to get the mods. But that kind of escalated <laughs> from just killing one guy. Um, so yeah, it's definitely I can see why it's a super useful tool. I'll definitely look into it. Awesome, that's great. Um, yeah, I I think the the last little bit I'd love to just talk a little bit about shooters and and how you because you know we we see all these top end shooters like um, Call of Duty Mobile you know, a little bit different than, you know, like some of the battle royals that are out there, but, you know, on, on track to do over a billion of in revenue this year. Um, obviously they've got a strong IP and a really strong team and stuff. Um, but you know, there's just so many of these shooters that are just doing amazing things. Um, and it seems like a super competitive market and, and everything that's going on out there. 
um, for folks that, you know, have always had this passion for shooters, you know, they've been playing Halo or Call of Duty or whatnot their entire lives. And they, you know, dream of bringing these great experiences to players. Like, you know, what sort of advice would you have to people that want to get into creating shooter games without uh, giving away the secret sauce at Savage, of course? So, well, play as many of them as possible, no matter the, the platform, like console, PC, mobile, of course, probably if you want to research controls and mobile, if you're developing on mobile, is probably the best choice. <laughs> but nothing prevents you from uh, exploring the, the genre completely 360. And also like these, these are uh, like something that I think should be dear to any game designer. If you're developing a shooter or something else, don't be fixated on the genre because I think inspiration or, or learning can come from uh, any other any other game and actually that maybe it's a way to make it novel and to spice it up a little but there is like the, the the good thing about those famous shooters is that they're famous so there is a lot of material that you can study on uh, a lot of the constructions a lot of uh, spreadsheets even i i saw uh, the construction of the time to kill of destiny 2 which was this really huge spreadsheet of data and I'm not even sure if it was released by the developers or by some, some crazy fan, but <laughs> it was super useful and interesting to know. And uh, so since they're famous, there's a lot of material and you can, you can do a lot of research on it. Even looking at what, what's the, the update history that they have had, it's really super useful. But again, like if you don't find your niche along these huge top players that are probably not gonna have a great time, so finding also where like, uh, like unexpected opportunities or unexploited opportunities, that's also probably something for, for product people to figure out and for designers to tap into. Yeah. There was a, uh, a book by one of uh, Procter & Gamble's old CEOs that was co-written with uh, a consultant that he used while he was CEO there uh, to really change the way they did innovation at P&G. Um, and uh, one of the stories that they shared in it was the development of the Big Bertha Golf Club. Um, and so this is back in the early 90s. Um, and, and traditionally, a lot of the golf club manufacturers would, um, you know, try to innovate on top of what was already there for the existing golfers. And so this company that ultimately created the Big Bertha said, well, we don't really want to compete with these other companies. So let's go look at the 90% of guys that don't play golf that are in that age group and every income bracket and stuff that should play golf, but don't understand like, why don't you play golf? Well, turns out hitting the ball is hard and they don't want to look like an idiot in front of their friends. Um, and so Ultimately, they created the Big Bertha, which is this golf club. It's got this like huge head, and it is very difficult not to hit the ball pretty well when you're swinging the Big Bertha. And so they ended up bringing all these guys into golf that had never played because, you know, now I don't look like a complete fool. But not only did they do that, but a lot of the existing golfers had that same problem. They just thought it was the fact of life of playing golf you know, they just weren't that good and they just had to like get better. They didn't think that there was anything out there, but because they focused on the players that didn't play golf, they were able to actually gain that insight. And they probably wouldn't have gotten that by just talking to the existing golfers. Um, and, and I always thought that was a very fascinating story that I think can translate into games. Like if I look at candy crush, Absolutely. Probably not going. Probably not going to get that many insights from players that play Candy Crush of like what's wrong with it. Um, but what about talking to those women that, by all accounts, should be playing Candy Crush but don't? I'm guessing may not be a fact, but you know, where did Homescapes and Gardenscapes come up with this meta idea? Probably it was from these players that were like, "Why do I want to play these? Like, what's the purpose? Why would I play this saga map of endless levels? Like, there's no reason behind it." And so, Homescapes gave them a reason. But then, even among those players, you know, Lily's Garden came in uh, from Tactile Games and said, "Well, just 
upgrading your, your, this old mansion isn't really that meaningful. Let's like add some rich story and narrative on top of this. And so it's like this progression of, of problem solving and stuff. Um, you know, do you think that there are similar opportunities within like the shooter genres to focus on, Hey, by all accounts, you should be playing call of duty mobile. Like, what don't you like about it? Like, why, why did you play in churn? and see if there's some sort of problem in there that you can actually fix for a meaningful number of players to kind of expand the genre as a whole, if that makes sense. Well, that's, that's absolutely like a valid product strategy. Um, I think like it depends if your audience is the same as these players or not. That's a starting point at least. So you mm-hmm. can understand like if you want to bring players from COD to your game and you're doing a PvP competitive shooter or a battle royale, then it's definitely like something you could look into, or you can take a subgenre that's different. For example, uh, shooter on rails, or a uh, looter shooter, or uh, action like uh, RPG shooter, or something or else. <laughs> yeah, like uh, if you if you if you have a shooter on rails, like my my guess is that the audience is going to be quite different from uh, fast paced uh, like frantic uh, Call of Duty PvP shooter. It's, mm-hmm. it's still a shooter, so there is some sort of uh, appeal of that um, shooting, shooting a gun uh, to zombies uh, or um, other other things. Um, so definitely, like you can either find your niche or try to see if you can bring the audience from a competitor. But of course, like if you are a small studio and your competitor is huge, then it's like a big challenge, and there are probably other ways, but. Um, but yeah, like, I don't think, I don't think, uh, there's nothing you can't find out with user research. It's going to be just only hard and takes probably a long amount of time. (laughs) But if you, if you, if you keep researching, you'll probably find something interesting enough. But on the other hand, it's going to be really hard to start thinking about a game without some sort of audience in mind. And also mm. developing a game without an audience in mind, like finding your audience, to me, it sounds always super risky. Yeah. Because what are your design choices like driven by? Like why are you designing this thing in a more hardcore or casual way? Like what, what's the end the point if you don't know what's the audience? So you, you mentioned you kind of used 12 traits for that. Like how, how does that process work or how do they come in and actually help you figure out what this niche or this audience is? So well, the, the tool is handled by, by the founders. So I just get the research and uh, the way I, I use it is by reading it and <laughs> trying to <laughs> make a presentation out of it if it's, if it's really complex. And uh, it's like the, the data they have or the, um, the facts and insights are really well structured. So it, it really helps you while designing something to just open uh, the research, look through it and see if it fits or not for the various player personas you have and, uh, and so on. That's awesome. Yeah. If you're listening, definitely check out 12 traits. Joe's awesome. Yeah, I actually live in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and uh, he graduated from the UW Wisconsin. So we kind of got that uh, Midwest here in the US uh, founder uh, perspective. So um, love nice. those guys. I think they're doing amazing things and they work with pretty much all of the big gaming companies and stuff and everyone loves them. So if you guys are looking for better ways to understand your audiences for new games, I highly recommend them. Um, one last question before our unofficial question. Um, you mentioned like playing a lot of, uh, you know, mobile games. If you're designing for a mobile shooter or something that is really useful. Um, do you think that there is value in playing, let's say shooter adjacent, or, you know, if I'm designing a puzzle game, like a puzzle adjacent game or something like that to just better understand things. So as an example, maybe I would say like a MOBA is sort of like shooter adjacent in the same of like playing uh, League of Legends, Wild Rift or Pokemon Unite or Brawl Stars or something to get a better understanding of like what controls could look like comparing those to say like Call of Duty mobile controls. Absolutely. Like there's a, uh... There's, I don't think there's any downside to studying more, that's for sure. <laughs> but if, you, if you're strict on time, then I, I still think that's valuable, especially if you can find uh, key people that talked about those things. Uh, they, as I said, like when I was talking about the Phoenix Ranger experience, the concepts are very easily transferable 
most of the times, the more abstract they are, they are of course more transferable. And uh, maybe that's where the innovation comes from as well. I was really impressed when Genshin Impact came out uh, on the way they handled the cross-platform controls and make them feel good on, on really both, both platforms. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they, 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 they did a very solid uh, work on, uh, on mobile. The controls are, are perfectly fine, to me at least. And mm-hmm. on PC, it's just uh, like a perfect execution, I think, on, uh, on, on 3D, uh, 3D control. Yeah, yeah. 3D Genshin was, was interesting for me. Like, I, I loved it on mobile. And then I played it on PC, and it was, like, even better. And it was actually hard even for me better, to go yeah. back to mobile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, of course, the mobile has, uh, like, for such an, like, it's a pretty immersive game, I'd say, uh, if, you're, if you're into the genre and the, the fantasy atmosphere. So, yeah, I, I see the appeal of the, the PC, but I was really impressed by the fact that it was, almost as playable on, on mobile. Yeah, no, I agree. I was like, I'm, I'm playing Zelda here. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> but especially the prototype stage, like the exploration like that on adjacent uh, genres can be really fruitful. Yeah. Even if you modify something as small as the way you show damage. I love it. I love it. Cool. Well, I, I know we're about out of time here. So I've got, you know, one last question because we are on the Mastering Retention Podcast. And that is, you know, uh, what's one tip, trick, or a lesson you've learned over the years to help increase uh, player retention? How do you keep players playing for longer? Let's see. I mean, let me think about it a little. So I think about what worked for me. Well, of course, optimizing the, 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 the tutorial can be a huge factor. And by optimizing, I don't need just, you know, pushing the player through the tutorial because obviously if you have a tutorial of two boxes of text, everybody's going to push it through (laughs) or 99% of the people, that's going to be very useful. So optimizing the tutorial by that, I mean also giving the player enough, just enough information for them to be hooked up and to be interested in, and that's highly dependent on the audience. So play player would like to figure things out, tell them there's something to be done with their with their weapon. I don't know. You can upgrade here your weapon, check out the mod system, whatever. And then there you go, maybe they're hooked. Or players that need a little bit more hand holding, then you can guide them and give them all the tools they need to deeply understanding their game. I, I think for day one retention, one of the biggest challenges is understanding if the players are dropping out because they don't like the game or because they don't understand the game. At least that's uh, something that I would I would focus on for, for day one. So trying to like understand which one of those two is, is. <laughs> and uh, a lot of user research before and after you are doing your tests. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of the before part because it can save so much time. Oh, yeah. And I think it's often under, underestimated. That's great. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if people do want to get in contact with you, is there a good way for them to do that? Oh, they can reach me out on LinkedIn or, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess like LinkedIn works really well. Or, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks Sounds for good. having me. It was super cool. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk soon.